Greetings, addicts, and welcome back for another episode of Inside Addiction, the only addiction that's good to have, addicted to knowledge. That's right. I'm your host, Bad Mitchell. I'm your other host, Melissa Mitchell. And we are on episode three now. Yes, we are. That's right. So, dun, dun, dun. Sorry, I've been watching the crudes lately. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think we all have. Well, when you have small children. You tend to watch stuff like that. Uh, well, they like uh, Benjamin and Nicholas. Rise of the Guardians is their favorite right now. Right. So Love it. They call it the Jack Frost movie. So yeah. you want to watch Jack? Jack? I get so excited. So um, <clears throat> this but episode. We, but we digress. Yeah, we digress. So this episode is, the subject was music. Yes, it was. And we picked Specifically, we chose Neil Pert. Pert. Pert? Pert? I don't know. I still can't figure out how you... I always thought it was Pert, but then you kept correcting me saying it was Pert. Because I read somewhere or somebody told me it was actually Pert, but then again, who knows where these sources come from, so... I'm going to go with Pert. Unless I... Until I hear him say how he says it, I'm going to go with Pert, just because I think it sounds better. Yeah. But then that also reminds me of the shampoo. Plus. Plus, yeah. <laughs> what was that joke? Uh, head and shoulders. If head and shoulders made a body wash, it would be knees and toes. <laughs> <laughs> I would so buy it too. That was a rim shot noise, by the way. Ironically, because the subject matter is. Oh yes, because yeah. Neil's a drummer, That's isn't right. he? Well, retired drummer. Well, but once a drummer, always a drummer. It's true. like being a marine. That's true. No offense to any Marines listening to this. My dad's retired Air Force. You were also former Air Force. I have a high respect respect for military personnel. Dark times. Dark times. <laughs> Shut up. So, yeah. <laughs> you okay? No. Okay, so, subject, Neil Peart. Pert. Pert? Pert. Okay. Neil Pert. No, so, Neil Peart. Neil well, which one is? What are we sticking with? <laughs> I don't know. So it's your dad. You know him better than I do. <laughs> I know of him. <laughs> you know of him better than I, I do. I don't know him personally. I'd like to uh, because, you know. Let's go with Pierre because I remember you correcting me many times because you had heard or read something. So let's go with Pierre. Okay, I'll try to remember that as I'm going through this. Uh, you could say it however you want. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners don't care. And if they do, email us. Let us know. Correct us. Yes. We're still waiting for that one email to come in. What one? Oh, yeah. No. Our first email. <laughs> InsideAddiction at gmail.com, people. Well, yeah, because we take critiques, compliments. Subject matter. Yeah, anything. Anything will do. Anyway, Neil Peart. All right, so... Yes, Neil... We're keeping the public waiting. That's right. Neil Elwood... Elwood? Elwood Peart. Elwood. That is an interesting middle very name. You up, don't hear that now. Very upper class. Elwood. Pinky's up. Are you drinking your tea? I am drinking wine, thank no, you. No, I'm saying when you drink tea, do you to, put your pinkies out? Your pinky up drinking wine. I didn't know you put your pinky up when you drink your wine. I think you can put your pinky up drinking anything. Really? Even a bottle of beer? Who would do that? A stein? Who would drink? Beer stein. It makes anything classy. You'd be drinking a glass, a, a bottle, hello, 
a can of Pabst and you put your pinky up, it's suddenly classy. So if I get a bottle of Mad Dog 2020. You stick your pinky up, it's Mad Dog, it's classy Mad Dog 2020. I'll be sure to do that when I walk into a country club with a bottle of Mad Dog 2020. I would love to see you walk into a country club. Because they'd be like, wait, wait, what are you doing with that? What are you, who are you? Oh, okay. Everybody's all right. Pinky's up. You must be of high importance. Yes, with my bottle of Mad Dog 2020. Which, by the way, is one of the most disgusting things I've ever tried in my life. Be glad you haven't. I, I have anything. no interest in trying it, but you the I, the visual of you in a country club is hysterical. Oh, I've been to a few. I know you. I'm not have. saying I fit in. I'm just saying. I'm not saying you haven't been. I'm saying the idea of you in one now is funny because that's like the polar opposite of who you are. Right, because I'd be too tempted to walk in and be like, "I say, good sir, your face resembles that of a baboon's posterior." <laughs> <laughs> it, it'd just be too difficult not to do that that reminds me of that episode of uh perfect strangers where the grandmother said something about she said something and balky talked about the restroom and she said well i never he goes so then i suggest you go try it out <laughs> i just pictured somebody going well i never and it made me think of balky i suggest right. you try a high fiber diet <laughs> Okay, we have just gotten to Neil's middle name, Elwood. <laughs> Already sidetracked into perfect strangers. I'm not making fun of his name. I mean, he, Elwood. It's, just, it's, it's a just very unusual common. name. Well, I'm sure back then it was. Well, more probably common. now. Now it's. I don't know. It, I guess they've gone now. The names have gone to like Derek, or but it's spelled really weird, like blanket. Yeah, that we won't. <laughs> we won't go into that. But, you know, most names, like... Mm. Northwest. 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 Kanye's daughter. Oh, I don't listen to that. I don't either, but... That's one of the reasons why I don't, aside from I just don't get into music. I don't follow up that. (laughs) Sorry. Um, yeah, so... Anyway, Elwood. Elwood, so... Very regal name. So, Neil Elwood Peart... Actually, he was born on September 12, 1952. 52. That's only six years older than our parents, mm-hmm. who my mother just had a birthday, so they are all now 61. Yeah. Because my mom's birthday is the last of the four. So 61, so he's 67. Yeah, that's pretty up there. Well, I guess now... It's... it's adequate retirement age for the work that he did. Especially after... Yeah, especially with all the... Didn't he have, like, arthritis? Yeah. Well, we'll get into that. Okay. Sorry. If you... Jumping ahead. But, you know, I guess anybody who's listening to this may or may not know that Neil, I would say, was the drummer for Rush only because they announced their retirement. He is the drummer for Rush. They're not. No, but if they did... It'd be him. Yeah, because I, I mean, if they came back. Right. Well, even if, if they, they did like a reunion tour, it would it would be him. He is the drummer for Rush. Yeah. But the probability of that happening is... Well, it's slim to none, but so, that goes without saying. Um, if you never saw them in, band, in concert, I pity you because they are the only concerts I've ever been to and they were phenomenal. 
Yeah. I was blessed with a husband obsessed with a magical band. Obsessed is a story. You're obsessed, <laughs> but it's it's okay. It's okay. Everybody yeah. has their obsessions. At least yours is with a band. Mine's with stationary products. We won't go into that right now. So, yeah. So, Rush. They either like them or you don't. They're very unique. Well, that's because they were more geared towards geeks and nerds. Like us? Yes. Well, yeah, like us. But, and anybody listening to this podcast, probably. And anybody who's ever been to a Rush concert would agree to that, too. Because, you know, I mean, there are a lot of fans out there are not geeks and nerds. But mostly the ones that you see, at least at a show or if you run into, they're a geek or a nerd. Not that that's a bad thing, because, like, once again, we are. Nerd pride, man. <laughs> Nerd pride. So. The geeks shall rule the earth. Not the meek, the geek. That was a mis- type- mis- 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 typo in the Bible. It's the geek. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. <laughs> <laughs> and you're the one that usually I know, says I'm Usually I'm the one, con- you know, getting on to you for blasphemous content. Um. But going back to Neil Pure and That's right. He, Pinky's. So he was not only the drummer for Rush, but he was the lyricist. Now what does that mean? Well, he wrote the lyrics. Oh, okay. So, but in the early 70s, when he first joined, he would write it on mythology and philosophy, science fiction, or fantasy. And then later on would progress to politics, uh, maybe religion, and still philosophy, but basically anything that involved his everyday lifestyle or reflecting on his adolescence. It's a very broad range of topics, considering if it's stuff that pertains specifically to him. Well, not not just specifically. I'm just saying, like... You know, when you, like, this is just when I did the research, I was reading about it. But from what I remember, yeah, it would be, you know, um, just anything that, you know, I mean, you got to imagine all the, he's he's in his 60s now, so. Seen a lot of shit. Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot to write about. But you kind of want to stray, I don't. I think there's only a few songs, they didn't want to be cliched, or at least he didn't in his writing. So he stayed away from writing a lot about love so much as he wrote about everything else. It's too easy to write about. Yeah, I don't recall hearing a lot of love songs, except for my favorite, the namesake of my nickname. Yeah, Panacea. But that wasn't... That, That, to me, sounds the most like a love song. It does, but... Actually, that was part of the Fountain of Lamneth song. Yes. But that was about a guy who had his eyes set on the mountains and went to go travel to the to find the Fountain of Lamneth and then... Right, but so, he still met up with this, this like, woman-like creature or something. I think that could have been... See, your, your take on it is... Di- now, everybody's take on music is different. I thought that he was with a woman. No, my take on it was, even though I call you Panacea, is because it's a cure-all, so you're my cure-all. So, but my take on it was, the main character in the story was going through a point in his life where he 
was in turmoil and he was struggling and he was down and he needed a pick-me-up. He needed a cure. So right. he was crying out for a type of panacea. Or, you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I just... I the way the way I heard the lyrics, I don't know. It, is that it sounded like on. he was with a woman because he was saying at 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 one point that um, he had to leave. I mean, I don't, which if you have to leave, then you have to leave something. He didn't want to leave, right? Right, but then what was he leaving? Paradise. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know. Was I always thought it was he was with a woman. I guess you could take it many different ways, except that you couldn't. <laughs> you okay. Sorry. Wind down the wrong tube. You could take it many ways, but <laughs> other than I don't take it like, hey, worship Satan, you know. Well, God, no. <laughs> so, That's like the farthest But the interpretation is, you know, I mean, when you listen to the music, it can go any I just, to want. me, of all their songs, I think that one was the one that sounded most like a love song. Because you could interpret it that he was with a woman. That he he felt was his panacea that he it was somebody that he could take comfort in and but he he had this mission this you know to find the fountain of lamb so he still had to leave yeah well and yeah i could see your point but also i wanted to bring up that even though so i know you like that song love it or that part there's like so many different uh, i mean i like parts. the whole song yeah, but it's, it's i like song. that part because that's yeah. that's my nickname so they're, like well, yeah, I can obviously, uh, but the Fountain of Lambeth, you know, the sad thing about it, about it is it's a really great song or great track. However, it didn't get a lot of good reviews. <laughs> it got a lot of backlash. Why? From critics, they just didn't like it. It was like um, I'm trying to remember. Well, they didn't like twenty one twelve until they they like put it out there, and then people went nuts over it. Yeah, well, which twenty one twelve is my other favorite. But we're getting off topic. Yeah, well, you know, um, it didn't. You know, they didn't really say why. They just said they got a lot of backlash on it from fans and critics. I, hmm. But you know, uh, well, the whole album did specifically uh, Fountain of Lambeth. But remember, these are records produced... Now, was that on Caress of Steel? Yes. That was the Caress of Steel album? Yes. Okay. Which had Lakeside Park, um, which is a good song, because uh, there's the the holiday every 4th of May. I'm trying to remember. May the 4th be with you. Yeah. Sorry. I think it's the 4th of May. I apologize. It's been so long since I've listened to the song. Toronto celebrates that day, and so they have fireworks. Why do they celebrate that day? I think it has to do with independence. <laughs> I don't. It's there's so much in this. I I. What is with countries on the fourth? I mean, we have July fourth, Canada's May fourth. What is with the fourth? It uh, well, here. Um, is it like a go forth and be a new country? You think? Could be. Little play on words. Like Russia ever did that. Oh. Sarcasm. They did a lot of that. Um, 24th of May. I'm sorry. Not the 4th. Uh, well, there goes my entire sorry, statement. That. Still got a 4 in it, though. But, um, but that's the thing. that Neil actually worked at Lakeside Park. Hence where the song came from. 
And he worked as like a, a gamer, like with the bubbles and the um, bubbles. Like it was some carnival game with bubbles, and he was a carny, pretty much. And you had carnies in your family. Yeah, I don't really know that much about it though. It's hard to backtrack and find that information. Although I wish I did know. That would be pretty cool. Um, just look at my notes here because it said it. Bear with me. You highlighted pretty much that entire page. I told you there was so much <laughs> in here I didn't want to miss. So should have given you different color highlighters. Okay, so yeah, he worked. He worked on the bubble game in Ball Toss. Um, but what is the bubble game? I don't know. I'd have to look that up. But it said that uh, when when the business was lacking, or you know, it said slack. Um, like a lull in business. It, yeah, it resulted in his termination. So he got fired because there wasn't... Oh, that blows. Yeah, not a lot of people were going to those things after a while. But that's where that came from. That said part. Cool. But I think we'd have to go back early is when he got into drumming. I think we should talk about that. Lead the way. So he was interested in drumming by the time he was 13, which he would go around the house and... Bang drum. on stuff. Yeah, he just banged. And so his parents said, okay, we'll give you, like, these drumsticks and we'll give you lessons. And if you show us, you know, that you are progressing within a year, we'll buy your first drum kit. Which they did. Awesome. So. Always nice to have supportive parents. Yeah, so. Versus you and I probably would have had parents that said, stop beating on crap. <laughs> no, not necessarily. My parents, you know. Help me pursue my interests. I mean, my parents did too, but whenever, I mean, when our kids start banging on pots and pans, the, your and I first inclination is to be like, knock it off! I say that, but I also think, I wonder how that ties into what their future is going to hold. Are they going to be, like if Benjamin was banging on stuff as a, like a drummer, I'm thinking, is he going to be getting the next Neil Peart? <laughs> oh, I don't think that. That's too far-fetched. Um, no, I think, I just think, I wonder if he may be, you know, a drummer as a, you know, take on drumming as a profession. I, if we go based on what our kids do most often as a profession, Nicholas is going to be a pickpocket because he touches <laughs> everything he's not supposed to. As soon as you say, don't touch that, he goes and touches it. So, Yeah, I think, I think he's just so curious and well, I mean, he mischievous is, he at the is same one. time. He is one. But still, I start calling the kid Puck. And that's a Shakespeare reference for anybody listening. Yeah, I didn't. Not that I know squat about Shakespeare. I didn't get into Shakespeare growing up. So Anywho, um, moving on. Yeah, so he got a drum kit for his 14th birthday. Oh, wow. So he was only basically taking lessons for about a year when they bought him his own kit. Yes. And then, um, and then what he did was he... He took his first stage debut that year at a school Christmas pageant in St. John's Angelican Church. So he'd only been taking basically lessons for a year and a half when he played, quote unquote, professionally at a school play. Yes. That's pretty damn good. Yeah. I mean, but I think it's when you have a passion. Well, that's true. And talent. Yes. Well, yeah. 
Um, and then after that, his next appearance was at Lakeport High School with his first group, The Eternal Triangle, um, which contained the original number LSD Forever. And that was his first, that's the first time at that show that he performed, well, his first solo. So Drum solos are always notorious in bands like Rush. Mm-hmm. It's like the guitar solo for most other bands. Yeah. I mean... I mean, Alex did his solos too, but I don't know. Maybe I just don't understand enough. What? As far as the... As far as is there a particular culture that is more favorable towards the drum solo versus the guitar solo? I don't know. Culture... I think it's more of the individual who likes the music. Okay. Because I, there's times that I'm going, man, that's a really good drum so you know. Well, I mean, in music, then, like, you hear today, like, Five Finger Death Punch and Disturbed and stuff, you hear a lot of the guitar solos, but you don't hear the drum solos like you did in the bands like Rush. Yeah. So I don't know if, is that just a generational thing? No, not necessarily. Um, Tool's got some combinations. But Tool reminds me a lot of Rush. They're like a modern age Rush. Yeah, they kind of... Because they, they're very philosophical with how they write their music. I think they inadvertently, without knowing, had taken Inspiration? the torch. Oh, I would say so. I think they, they took the torch not realizing they took the torch, not really wanting to say, yeah, I'll take right. the torch. I think it's just, just something that happened because they're they're progressive. They're known as a progressive rock band, so they progressed to the point where which Rush <coughs> was a progressive rock band too, weren't they? <coughs> yes. I mean, you have to be if you're going to move forward in your career. You well, can't stand. You can't stand. And but plus, I mean, they were progressive in the sense of just the the subject matter. Yeah, of because their music right. it wasn't the typical sex, drugs, rock and roll. No, that was Rush didn't have that rock and roll. Yes, well, but I mean that but. you bands like ACDC, Aerosmith. Yeah, I mean, well, it gets old, older. You get, you know, it's less appealing. It is at least I think. I mean, I was never really appealing. You know, I never, I never gravitated towards the no, drugs or no or but i mean what i mean is like those bands like you know aerosmith acdc black sabbath metallica they feel more like a a physical rock group versus tool and especially rush is more of a mental rock group yes because because it, to understand their lyrics you have to be mentally fit yes and I, I guess that's why you and I like them so much is because it, it does work on our brain and being knowledge addicts. It's what we're drawn to. Well, yeah, because the concept with Tool is to open up your third eye and not really listen to the lyrics so much as you're just listening to the music. kind of opens up a doorway. The, the lyrics are kind of guiding you, but the music itself is what really carries the you. The music is the message, not the lyrics. Right. And, but... For Rush, I always felt that it really It was went, the opposite. It was hand in hand. Like, I think with Tool's music, it's hand in hand, you know, and I want to say it's 50-50, but more so in Rush. Rush, it right. was 50-50. In Tool, it kind of varies depending either on your mood or just the song itself. I don't know. And everybody's different. Once again, my take has always been, sometimes I really like the and I'm lit. I'm just focusing on the, the lyrics. Other times, I'm just going with the flow with the music, and it's making me think about other things that not involved with what you know, Maynard is singing about. Right. So, but 
with Rush, it's really rare that I do that. I'm usually focused on the lyrics, so I'm thinking about what's being said. Yeah. And, you know, so that... Neil was a master at creating these epic stories, wasn't he? Yes, but he started off with Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand's work, when, that's when he went to England. Because he was trying to become a professional... He was, he was trying to become professional and get a gigs and make mm-hmm. it. But it wasn't really working, so by the time he was like 18, he went to England... Still struggling, but he, he read a lot of Ayn Rand. And then, you know, like he was working at a jewelry shop because he wasn't making any money. And then after 18 months, went back to Canada. But I'm just throwing it in there because that was the time that he got into Ayn Rand, which really was weird because a lot of his works, like 2112, which is, you know, he greatly, like he noted in the, I guess, the booklet or the sleeve of the record, he would give thanks to Ayn Rand in a way. Hmm. But he wasn't like, and so it was weird because he was perceived to be, like Russia's perceived to be like Hitler. It was kind of weird when I read it. Yeah, it didn't make any sense because even Neil was like, what? It doesn't. What? Yeah. Rush was hit. What? Yeah, like the the philosophy of, I don't know, maybe, I don't want to say fascism, but maybe fascism or communism. I don't know. It was weird to read uh, once again, if you listen to Rush, you know, there's no way you could put no. those together. No. But uh, like, that's what I, I was reading. I have minimal exposure just because that's I I'm a I'm an eclectic. I listen to a wide range of stuff. I'm not specialized in any particular band. But from the exposure you've given me to Rush since we first started dating over ten years ago, mm-hmm. that it I that doesn't. Ramstein sounds more Hitlerish to me than Rush, <laughs> and they're just vulgar. You say Ramstein. I'm gonna say Ramstein just because. Whatever. I, it, well, that anyways. Potato, tomato. I you know, but I'm just saying. I'm gonna say Ramstein because I'm gonna pronounce it that way. We pronounce it differently. Um, Ramstein, in my opinion, my I, they're opinion. just they're just vulgar. Oh yeah, they're vulgar. They in fact they went to recently. You you know I'm sure you don't know this. Oh, I probably not. I, I don't read listen it. to the news I, at all. Well, I read it in like uh, heavy metal. Right. I don't movies. listen to any kind of news. So I but I get it. I, when I go to Google on the app on my phone, I pull up Google and I hit the plus up in the corner. It gives me like the latest news going. Yeah. So see, I, surf, I don't. I don't even. Do I that. surf down that list and I, I saw. I saw one on Romstein because that's how I knew Tool came out with their single to stream and that they were streaming all that. Oh, you were so excited about that. Yeah, that's an understatement. So, <laughs> like a giddy schoolgirl. <laughs> giddy schoolboy. Schoolgirl. So, <laughs> say what you want. I know you. No, but Romstein, I read that they, they played in Russia, but because I guess in Russia they're still dealing with lesbian gay community being backlash or whatever oh as far as the being open about yeah, it yeah so what romstein did was they <laughs> performed but two of the members locked lips on the stage <laughs> so it's kind of basically funny. supporting the the gay community yeah i mean they good but, on them so it was it, i read that and i just i just kind of chuckled going on that's Romstein for you. I mean, I yeah, can see they're it. they're always pushing the envelope. I mean, they're they're if you really get into their lyrics, I mean, you have to translate it because it's German, right? You know, unless they sing it in English, and even then, I'm not sure the English translation is accurate. The closest Only, one is the yeah, 
America song where it talked well, about Santa Claus and Mickey Mouse? Well, there was the version, the, the uh, English version of Duhost. Oh, really? I've never heard that. Yeah, that was on their album. It was like one of the last tracks they had redubbed it in the English lyrics, or they sang it in English. So Don't remember. It's like it's been it, so long since I've actually listened to Rammstein. Yeah, so I mean, if you ever get a chance, listen to Rammstein, but keep an open mind because their nope. music is great, but they can if be you, If very, you look up the lyrics, it's very, very vulgar. Very politically incorrect. At oh, times. God. And it's really fascinating that just going on Rammstein real quick. Like uh, the late singer, uh, I think it's Lin Lindman Till, and I can't. I don't remember. Anyways, the lead singer, he was one after Rammstein had taken a break. He obviously tried to do solo work, and I honestly have not been a huge fan of his solo work because I guess I'm just after listening to Rammstein, I kind of want to just listen to Rammstein. Right. As far as when he sings, I want it to sound like Rammstein. Well, See, I'm like that with Rush. As far as when I hear Getty Lee, I want it to be Rush, not just Getty Lee. Because I know they all did their own solo stuff. Yeah, Alex did uh, his solo, Victor. That's what it was. Yeah. And he had to shut up and play the guitar song. And it was, if you ever had a chance, I'm sure it's on YouTube. But yeah, I had the, I actually got a copy of the album somewhere. But see, and there's a couple songs you've played for me that I was like, oh yeah, it's Rush. You're like, no, that's not Rush. That's just Getty Lee. And I'm like, but, 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 but. Well, that but was Rush, off. But Getty Lee is Rush. Well, I mean, because that's what you associate with him. It's hard to see him do anything else and not think Rush. And then you're disappointed when it doesn't sound that way. So, but for him, yeah, you're talking about my favorite headache when, yes. when they had that hiatus right and they all just kind of you know took a break did their own stuff you know well and in all fairness you they had to and oh I, right i'm not i'm not i'm not upset with them for doing that it's just it's like when you hear the lead singer for rammstein your brain goes rammstein and you're like what is this whenever it's not rammstein it's just him that's how i am with getty lee i mean i still like the song but i'm like but 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 that's rush so like well with judas priest when they had ripper owens Right, it's not, it's not, it's like they, I think it's funny because you can't find, it's not Rob Halford, Rob Halford is Judas Priest. They got that locked down on streaming though, because you can't find Ripper, I can't find Ripper Owens, like the music that he did with Judas Priest. Probably because nobody wants it. I like that album that came out that he was in, but it wasn't, it wasn't Rob Halford, so it wasn't really the same Judas Priest, so. I mean, it's along the same lines of, of Freddie Mercury is Queen. I mean, I know Queen has a new lead singer now, or they kind of rotate through lead singers, because I think um, David Lee Roth did a bit with them once, and it was just, in my opinion, it was awful. <laughs> well, that's David, David Lee, awful. or is it David Emphysema And David Emphysema Roth, it was awful. And it's, it's not Queen. Freddie Mercury is Queen. I mean... No offense to the other guys, without his sound, it's just not the same. No, it's not. So, yeah, I mean, that's on that, you're talking about, so even if Alex and Getty Lee were to get together, I'm sure that they would write music together, but there's... Uh, it just, it wouldn't have the same... No, because... Element, because Neil, with his... His yes. highly philosophical writing mm -hmm. just brought a whole new level. That and the rhythm he brought, because sometimes he did. The, his sometimes the drummer's rhythm will help carry or 
uh, it adds a particular create, cadence. Help create the, yeah. So like if, if he's so like if they're trying to create a song, sometimes a guitarist or the vocalist can't come up with something. So they start with the drumming and they come up and so the drummer comes up with a rhythm and then the guitarist will pick up on it and start and, going it, with, and it evolves and from there. But with Neil also, and I think I told you this a while back, was Getty won't sing any of Lee's, I mean, sorry, Getty won't sing any of Neil's lyrics if he doesn't truly understand the meaning behind them. Because there's times, obviously there's times when Getty's like, I get it, I'll, I could sing it. And there's times when Getty's right. like, what do you really mean by this? Right, and like, why, why are exactly him. are we singing about this? Yeah, like, what did, what did you mean by this part? And so Neil would tell him, he goes, okay, gotcha. So then that's how he would be able to, to come up with how he was going to you know, perform and sing in it. That actually makes me think of your favorite song, the Cygnus X-1, mm-hmm. um, because I'm still trying to make, crochet that blanket for you. And so I looked up the lyrics to that song and I started doing research on Cygnus X-1 and the story behind it and what it is. And it's really, really super interesting reading the lyrics mm-hmm. and once you have the knowledge of what it act, what it is that they're talking about this black hole in the Cygnus constellation mm-hmm. you're just like holy crap I understand what the F they're talking about and it's really really cool that- because they talk about at one point the um like one of their sisters was disappearing or the loss of their sister. Yeah, which... And it's because one of the stars in the Cygnus constellation is being sucked into the black hole. And right. eventually it won't exist anymore. Right. And after reading that, I was like, holy crap. I understand that now. And it was just so cool. On the great... Was it, was it the ship called the Rasanante, which is the Rossinante. great white horse. I like that. I do like that song just because uh, the way it's written and performed... But that's book two off book one, which is Hemispheres. Right. And that didn't get a lot of appraisal. Which I just thought it was also weird that book one and book two are split between albums. Well, you gotta understand, they wrote these long stories. Well, I know that, but I mean, but you would think that they'd have part one and part two at least on the same album. No, because remember on a record, and this happened with 2112. When they were producing these records, the record producers needed something to play over the radio. Right. So they had to give them in a contractual obligation. They had to give them songs, short songs that probably were catchy enough to play on the radio. Like Tom Sawyer. Yes. But for 2112, it was, um, I think Twilight Zone was one of them. And... Passage to Bangkok, maybe a not, was probably mm. another single that got played. Because when they, in the story of 2112, if we ever actually get deep into Russia stuff, what happened was they were set to create. So, okay, so Fountain of Lameth, so Caress of Steel, I think, came out after uh, Fly by Night. Fly by Night is when Neil jumped on board. And who was the drummer before Neil? John Rutson. And he had to quit because of diabetes. cancer? No, diabetes. He, had di- he had diabetes and he just couldn't tour. Because at that point, they were a local band. He could handle... Right, the local gigs. Or gigs, yeah. But when they got big, uh, you know, especially now, in the States, they got a, started getting a cult following. 
Right, but was Neil the drummer during 2112? Yes, he he created 2112. Obviously not the sole creator. Right, but he was the the lyricist for 2112. Which was, yeah, which was based off um, stuff he read off of Van Rand's books. Okay, see, I haven't read enough Van Rand. It was an inspiration, so he wrote 2112. So, but Hemispheres, I want to say, came out after, and once again, I'm a little rusty because it's been a little while. Hemispheres, I believe, came out after. Um, I'll say Fountain of Lamp. I mean, uh, I mean, of Caressive Steel. So it was like Caressive Steel came out, didn't get good review. Hemispheres, I think, came out after that, and they got the tree producers to play the trees, or, or the uh, radio station played the trees, which was a good hit. But that was on one side. They had. There's small tracks. On the other side was Hemispheres, book one, which... So the one side was just book one. Yeah, because it was so long. And then the other side was all the other small tracks. Oh. So, because like I said, they, they needed something. They could, so when they right, gave it I knew them, that. I just, I didn't know that the one side was just book one. I thought it was book one and like a couple of other songs. No, it was, yeah, one side was book one. And then, and then the other side of the record was all the other small tracks. The small tracks. Yeah. And then the next album was book two, and the flip side was all the other tracks. The next album, I think, was... Hang on a second here, because I'm... Like, once again, I'm doing this off from memory, and it's not easy. They have so many albums, it's hard to keep up with. Um, but... I remember when you first played Rush for me when we first got together. Like, even before we were dating, I was like, this is weird. But that was before I really started listening to what they were saying. And and it was so off from what I was used to listening to, which was, you know, your classic rock stations. Yeah, well, like I said, you have to truly either get it or you don't. Right, but it was one of those that when you first hear it, if if all you're used to is like your classic rock stations, then when you first hear it, it is really kind of odd because it it's not mainstream. No, but but I think that was their intent. But if you love philosophy and you're trying to understand the world around you better, that's why. Or at least that's why I listen to Rush. Not so much. I love the music. I love. The guitar playing and the drums and the Gateway singing. I love all of it. But I really love Neil's writing because when I was an adolescent in the early age, it made a lot of sense. And, and that was the time when you, when you, it's like, if you listen to, so Fountain Lambeth would be a prime example. One of the reasons I like that. It starts off with, you know, I am born, I am new. You know, the world is new to me. You know, I see the lot, you know, everything is, it's just brand new, and then I'm seeing the mountain in the east, and it's calling me. So then I get old enough to go travel with them. So you're like going through this journey, but you're learning. So at the time, like going through puberty and yeah. adolescence. So and... at the time when I was listening to Rush, the first album that I got, you know, I've listened to Rush before on the radio. Didn't really know who they were until I got a copy of my mom's. You know, she let me take her uh, what was it, uh, Grace of Pressure uh, cassette tape to music class. And I got to play a song because I played it on, you know, they had a boom box, you know, a tape player. And I, and I, she goes, you got to try this one to see if you like it. And I was like, okay. So I listened to it and I really liked it. 
And I thought, man, I think other people should hear this. So then I took it to music class because it was my turn to take something to play. And nobody got it. Nobody got it. Nobody understood. I understood what they were saying. But nobody else really did. No, the kids didn't understand it. Though. This is like second grade. So it was like. So this this spoke to you on a personal level in second grade. So you were like seven. Yeah. And so then it was like, um, well, maybe it was third grade. Doesn't matter. It was well, seven or eight. But still, less yeah. than people. It was prepubescent. So, yeah. So I, I liked the songs. It was like Kid Gloves. Kid Gloves was on Grace Under Pressure. I believe that was the first song that I played for him. And remember, and this was the time, I didn't get along with my peers, so I was always bullied, right? And Kid Gloves was exactly about that. About being bullied. Right. So I got, I got it made sense. I loved it. And then I tried to, to play that so that other kids could hear it and understand it, and it didn't, it didn't take. But I know the teacher got it. And then my time again, I brought Grace Under Pressure again, but this time... It was about, it was Red Sector A about the Holocaust. And that's how I learned about the Holocaust. That's a very deep song for a third grader. So, and then I started to get more into Rush. I think it just, that's when I became a huge fan because I started, I was learning things that I guess the world had felt that I wasn't ready to learn, but I was. Right. Because you were, you're, you were maturing faster than your peers. Right. So I was thinking on a level higher, you know what I'm saying? Like. Higher plane yeah. than right, which there are kids out there that that do that, and they just they feel so ostracized because yeah. they're they they're thinking so deeply about this stuff, and other other kids are just kicking dirty at each other, and <laughs> you know, yeah. So ostracized, I, um, yeah. Name it. It was, but that was you know how I got into it. So, but to go back, okay. So I've got the list. All right. So after Russia's self-titled album. It was Fly By Night. That's when Neil joined and jumped on board. So the original drummer was only on for basically the one album? Yeah. Okay. And because they at that point they got famous, especially in... So they got famous after one album. Yeah, after one album. That's finally... pretty huge because most bands take a couple albums before they really get it out was, there. Yeah, it was a, I think it was a rock reporter in Ohio that caught on to him. She still is friends with him to this day. Like That's they, pretty cool. When they had their, I guess, the star of, it was the what, was it, Walk of... Oh, um, when they did the Walk of Fame? Yeah. They got their star on the, on the Walk yeah, of Fame? Yeah, so she was, I believe she was there with them, because if it wasn't for her... They'd still be in the garage in Canada somewhere. Yeah, and then in San Antonio, they were big in San Antonio, because Joe Anthony, and this is only from what I heard, because I, obviously I was too young, and my parents... My dad listened to the rock station down in San Antonio. It was Joe Anthony's. He was a DJ. I guess we went to, he had a pizza place we used to go to as a kid, when I was a kid. I don't remember it. <laughs> Joe but, Anthony, DJ and pizza. But he was known as the godfather of rock and roll down there. Really? That's what he was called, the godfather of rock and roll. Joe That's Anthony. Cool. So he would play all these unknown metal bands or rock bands. Um, and that's how they started getting, getting famous. Like Judas Priest was another one. He got Judas Priest to Texas. Hmm. So, you know, Joe Anthony. So Rush, he was promoting. How cool would it be to know that you were that person that basically lit a fire in your particular region Mm -hmm. for these amazing bands? Like that was you. Yeah. Well, and 
I'd love to know what he thinks today, but unfortunately, that's not going to happen. Is he, did he pass he away? He passed away years ago. Oh, that sucks. But yeah, so Neil joined on board like as soon as they, um, as soon as he jumped on. Well, that was a thing too. Real quick, I'm going to go in and, and say, Getty liked Neil because they got along. They they loved the same stuff, like I want to say music and books, but. Alex didn't really feel the same way, and, and they thought they thought it was funny because when Neil auditioned for to be a drummer for Rush, he uh, they said he showed up and he was like in raggedy clothes. He showed up in a battered, beat up Ford Pinto. His drum kit, a Pinto. Yeah, his drum kit was in trash cans. <laughs> and then when he got hired aboard, they I guess they they were able to get him a new drum kit, and then the rest is history. But they toured. By the way, they did like. I just pictured. Touring. I just pictured Neil showing up, going, "Sup." <laughs> I think he was more embarrassed. Um, but you know, unlike Tommy Chong and Cheech and Chong's first movie, when he's got his drum kit and that VW Bug with the get yeah, that's Rolls what I'm pic- that's grill what, in the front. That's what I'm picturing. Is that kind of setup? Like he's just like, whatever. This is my life. So you know. He, he probably was. Who knows? I, I'm not him. I don't know. But yeah, so that's how he 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 had his own style, much like uh, you know uh, Keith Moon the, from the Who. And then they hired him. Then he got a new drum kit. Then they toured and they toured extensively for like three years, like 300 gigs a year. Yikes! Yeah, he said that was a dark tunnel in his life at that point. Then they had to change the way. Well, that they would yeah, tour. I mean that's this five days off of the year. I mean, that's insane. Yeah, that's why, well, you can understand now uh, why he, I mean, why he's retired. Well, I'll get to the why he's retired more so here soon. But, like I said, it was, so you got to look at it. Fly by Night, 75, Fly by Night came out. 75, Caress of Steel came out. 76, 2112, 77, Farewell to Kings. 78, Hemispheres. And then eighty was permanent waves, eighty one moving pictures. So, so they 82. had a little bit of a break yeah. in seventy nine. So like, so virtually every year they were kicking out an album. Yes, Yikes. and twenty one twelve was their make it break out album. So which came out in what year? Twenty one twelve was seventy six. Yeah, well, neither of us were born. No, well, twenty one twelve is a legendary album. I mean, anybody. Now, what was the story behind that album coming out? Because I remember you telling me a story that, like, it was one of those, we're going to write it the way we want it, and if it's a hit, then you let us do whatever we want. Yeah, well, it wasn't necessarily uh, meant to really be like that. What happened was they were obligated to put out another record. Right. So they're under contract, and they said, let's... Let's just do it this way, and if it doesn't work, if it flops, we'll all go our separate ways and call it quits. Rush was going to call it quits because they thought, "I don't really want to make music just because I don't we have like. a contract." Right. So, you know, as far as you know, at least under contract with whoever it was. Yeah, I don't know. And they wrote twenty one twelve on one side of the record, and on the other side was all the other tracks. Was t- wasn't Tom Sawyer one of them? No, that was off Moving Pictures. Oh, okay. that, was, that came out in '81. I know that one because that was the year I was born, so that's why I remember that. Yeah, I still wasn't born. That's all right. Gilbert. 
No. Sorry. That's wrong. <laughs> I got to tease you, baby. So, uh, 2112. So, what happened with 2112 was they made the record, and the producer, I guess he probably was sweating bullets because he already knew what the meeting was going to be like when he showed, I guess, the CEO or whoever of the record company, and he handed them the record and they played it. They played side A, which was 2112 in its entirety. And the CEO goes... I can just see eyebrows being raised. Yeah, CEO goes, what the hell is this? How are we supposed to play this on the radio? And the producer goes, oh, flip it over. And so they had some singles that they could play. And they did. But what they didn't anticipate was that 2112 was going to be a mega hit, especially with you know, the cult following they had. Right. And it would expand to even more fans. So the, the 2112, the super long song. The make it became, or break it song. Became more popular than the singles that yes. came out on the radio. And it got played a lot more, too. So it just kept going. And back then, you know, it was... I mean, I remember bootleg. hearing 2112 on the radio on rare occasions. Well, they only play... They don't... Like, they would play a part of it. They only play the beginning. Yeah, but still. Overture and Temples of Syrinx, and that's still. Like it. But that's still part of 2112, which they, they didn't anticipate that that would be something that would get played on the radio. Right. And if I remember, that's about a 20 minute long track. Just right. So, I mean, that's like Indigata de Vida is 20 The long version. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, so that was. So they came out with that, and then that happened. And, and see, and, and then, 2112 was what really piqued my interest is because just listening to the the lyrics that they come up with, and that's when I started asking you questions about how do they come up with these lyrics? And you said, well, it's Neil that comes up with them. He's a reader. And I say a reader. And I'm like, well, how does he come up with this bookworm. stuff? He's read so many books. That's you showed I mean. me pictures of them on tour, and 90% of the time he had a book in his hand. Yeah, he would be just be reading. Whatever came to him, he'd read it, and then... And he'd be writing lyrics. I mean, he's probably got a book, a binder full of lyrics he never, they never used. You know, maybe there's some B-sides that we'll get down the road and go. I could see why they didn't put this out, but who knows? Um, but that's what happened with him. I disagree. I think even if you if they came up with like B-sides, it would still be it'd be like. Da Vinci's sketches or Van Gogh's sketches, even though they're just sketches would, that it's not real artwork to just to have those rudimentary, only, you know, well, I would beginnings. Say, yes, but only to those who truly appreciate Rush. True. For who they are. True. But only, so true fan. Would, but if you give an art, an, uh, an art critic, a sketch there, they'll appreciate it much like a, a Rush fan would versus just some Joe Blow off the street, you hand them the sketch, you'd be like, what the heck, what the heck is this? This is garbage. Yeah. No, that's that's a Van Gogh original. They they don't care. No, I mean... I, so that's what, that's what I'm saying. If those B-sides came out, the, the people who would truly appreciate it, it would, even if it wasn't like a great song, it would still be precious to the people who, who really appreciated them. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate Rush's music. I still listen to it. I don't like all their songs as far as they're not all, not every song to me, obviously. Well, no, because 10, nobody's nobody's favorite band has songs that they that they just love every single song. Well, I, I'll tell you like this. 
I always like their early stuff and some of their new stuff. But if we were to compare it, let's go back to Tool. I don't really like their old stuff, but they pro- their progression into the new stuff, it sounds more like Rush to me than the old stuff does. If that makes sense. The old stuff was, so do you we're think a metal you, band or we're a heavy so, rock band. So, and, so you think they were more mainstream in the beginning? Tool? Yeah. Yeah, in a way, I think they were. So do you think part of the reason you like them is because they're Rush-ish? They just have that sound that kind of sounds like Rush to me. I mean, the, the ambience of it. Right, but yeah. do you think that's part of the reason why you like them? Is because they resonate so well with with Rush, who was basically your lifeline throughout adolescence. Yes. Yeah, because now where I'm at in my life... It's like tools your lifeline through Yeah, that's like Rush could only get me so far. And, you know, it's like, it's like parents and children. As parents... You try to raise your kids the best you can and get them prepared for the outside world and push them out of the nest and say, now you, you've, I've given you all the tools that I think you will need. I may have missed some. You may not have all of them, but it's up to you from what you learn to develop those tools on your own and go forth and do what you need to do to survive and be successful. Rush did that for me growing up. I would say... Even all the way up through, even when I was in the Air Force. So early 20s. Yeah. And then by the time I got to my 30s, it, it didn't really, I don't want to say it faded out, but it wasn't, I guess, well, I guess you could say it kind of faded out to where I was at a point where I still would listen to Rush, but I didn't listen to them as much because I got all I was going to get, I felt. Right. So the tools, I already knew them. I already used them for so long. And then, but, but by that time, Tool had come <laughs> in. Mid two thousand. What you said? You use all the tools. Yeah, it's, well, that's you. that's the and then you transitioned to tool because that's why their name is tool because their purpose was to help you know say like educate you or open up your mind. I never thought of it like yeah, that. It wasn't like in the beginning you could say it was because tool is just another way of saying you know a male's genitalia. And right, that, and that which would, was very prolific it was in vulgar, that time period right, for the rock and roll community. Right, it, it's vulgar and it works at that time in the 90s when they first started coming out and playing and performing and all that stuff, you know, and becoming bigger. But they got to the point where they got older. Right. And spiritually... As they've gotten better as artists, but spiritually they were trying so, to figure out where they so were going. So they in transitioned life. from being a phallic tool to being a mental growth tool, right? So where Rush was there a lot mentally, or you know, they tool had become a point for me at least emotionally and spiritually and mentally. They've actually they've actually put in three in there because you like they said um, pry open your third eye. So when you li- if you listen to Maynard's lyrics and what he's talking about, he's just saying there's more to it than you see. But if you actually see it, you know, I'm going to tell you how you can see it, at least from my perspective. But you need to go out and you need to pry open your third eye. So you need to wake up. Yes. And when you do that, it's like opening up another door to where you just feel better because you start to understand more, especially pertains to what we're dealing with now because they're relevant. Right. 
Hmm. So, but they had that 13 year hiatus and that was for many reasons I won't go into, but there's more to it than I even know. And now, like I said, now. Plus that's, that's a subject for another album. Right. And now their new album's coming out and so far I could tell it's going to be a great album. You're giddy as a schoolgirl. Yeah. You keep saying that. I'm giddy. You are giddy as a schoolgirl. School girl. So anyways, but that's in comparison to Rush and Tool and how they affected me as, as a person. But Rush more so than Tool, and you know now with their retirement, which they announced in 2012, I think it was. No, it was later than no, that. No, no, December 15th. Yeah, they announced their. Well, Pert Pert announces retirement in 15, and then eventually. Yeah, because that was the year Benjamin was born. Yes. Because the, they came out with that. What was it we went and saw in theaters? Was it? Um, it was after Benjamin was born. We went and saw something in theaters that they had put out about, like, it was a document. Was it the R40 documentary? Or was it Clockwork Angels? Uh, what's the R40? I think it was the R40 documentary. Well, the documentary was, um, I don't think it was R40. It was not the documentary title. No, but it pertains to their R40 yeah. album. Yeah, they, they retired not so long. Maybe it was 2016. I'm trying to remember. Um, but any case, I mean, his, so, but he, you gotta see his drumming style at that point, he changed it up. So, as far, not that point, but before that. Now, see, I'm trying to get back to where there was the early rush, and then there was a rush that progressed into, like, um, drum, like, was it techni- technical drumming, techno drumming? You know what I'm saying? It, I can't explain it. it. He's got, like, various different drum kits attached to one drum that rotates. One drum kit that rotates. And he uses cymbals and... Yeah, I just... But I he uses... different drum sets, basically. Yeah. I mean, I've seen his drum kit, and it's, it's flipping huge. Yeah, well, once again, he's he's got a big influence. Like, he's big into jazz, but the thing about Neil is that he's always progressing. So, I guess, going back to his retirement, he's put so much on his body because he kept changing up how he plays. Like, he, he's, like, he progresses, but it, t- it took a toll on his upper and lower body. So he has all these joint and arthritis issues. And, yeah, so... You don't realize how much moving they actually do. Because, I mean, you think, okay, he's sitting in one spot at a drum set. How bad could it be? Well, and that's... Well, his like I said, his drum set alone, like, it got to the point where he had to modify it. Because he kept adding stuff to it. I'm talking, like, the tubular bells or, you know, like... The, the gong, the, you know, um, what is it? The cowbell. It doesn't have much space, but. You need more cowbell. But, but, but he kept adding, so he had to modify it. and But he did, because he'd always have to turn around, and so it had to rotate, and his playing styles, and, and he would, he learned, by the way, is what I read. You know how most people play with the drumsticks with the small end? Mm-hmm. He stopped doing that a while ago, because it would always snap, and he couldn't afford to buy more. So he'd flip them around and play he the other. He played with the bigger end? Yeah. Really? 
Really? Uh-huh. I never knew that. He doesn't that. like to play the other way now. You know, like he's just so used to With the, the rounded tip. Uh-huh. I never knew that. Yeah. He even created three, I think it was three different signature sets he had created one time for a tour they were doing. But, um. I never knew that. Mm-hmm. But he learned to play jazz, and then he took up more lessons from another uh, drumming instructor who, who actually uh, taught an ex-Journey drummer, Steve Smith, taught him how to play better. Oh, I love Journey. And so Neil had asked him, how did you progress? How did you learn to do yeah, this? And he, told, he, got, he dropped the guy's name, uh, Freddie Gruber. So he learned how to play that. God bless you, Freddie Gruber. <laughs> so, and then he did, um, what was it? Early 2007, Pure and Kathy Rich, um, or no, no, I'm sorry, before that, Kathy Rich, actually, Buddy Rich's daughter, um, asked Neil to do a tribute on the drums, in a, I guess, to play a tribute with other band members. A tribute to who? Her dad? Yeah, 92. Sorry, it was 92 that Pure was invited by Buddy Rich's daughter, Kathy Rich, to play at Buddy Rich's Memorial Scholarship Concert in New York City. However, Peart accepted, but he was used to playing the old style he heard all the time. Mm-hmm. And when he was going to perform, um, it was he found out the band played a different arrangement of the song. So then he was, so feeling that his performance um, lacked you know, uh, it needed more basically. It just, Mm -hmm. so what he did was he decided to produce and play on two Buddy Rich tribute album, tribute albums titled burning, burning for Buddy, a tribute to the music of Buddy Rich in 94 and 97 in order to gain his confidence. Then in 2000, early 2007, he and Kathy Rich again began discussing yet another Buddy tribute concert. And, once again, he he, um, he augmented his swing style and formal drumming lessons under uh, another pupil of Freddie Gruber. So so he he pretty much said, I, I feel bad, I guess. I didn't play the way I should have or mm-hmm. I could have done better. I'm going to go and do better. I'm going to come back and we're going to do this again. And hmm. he did. So that's what he was doing. But okay, so let's talk about why Rush went on a hiatus. Because we really need to get into that. Okay. okay. So. I, when did they go on this hiatus? It was the Test for Echo tour. 97, soon after the conclusion of the tour. I was eight. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. His, his daughter and then only ch- That's all right. His daughter and, and only child at that time, 19-year-old Selena Taylor. She, I remember hearing about this, of course, because I... I remember getting tickets. Now, mind you, this was the day there was no Ticketmaster. So you actually still had to stand in line outside the record store and hope that you were in the right, you know, you were ahead of everybody else, at least in the right part of the line to get good seats. Right. First come, first serve. So I remember I really wanted to get these tickets. I know my parents wanted to as well. So I told them because I actually had the money for it. I paid for my ticket and their tickets. If they would take me to go... And you were, what, 18? 97? I was 16. Because I had a job. Right, but you and I are eight years apart. And at 97, I was eight. I'm always one... No, that doesn't... Okay, 97. 
I'm always one year less, so let me think. Yeah, because I'm one year. You have to subtract one from whatever number it says. Oh well, then I was six. Yeah. Sorry. I was like, wait a minute, I was doing math. Sorry. I, the easiest way to I was thinking this. one year greater. No, no, no. no. I'm one year. I was six. So I was sixteen. There you go. So. I didn't even know you. Were I know. Horrible. <laughs> it's funny. So yeah, so I remember standing in line getting tickets, and then I we went to go see the show. That was when Alex was trying to play. It was twenty one twelve, and I was looking forward to it. And his his the, the speaker that his guitar was hooked up to kept wonking out. It was shortening out. He kept kicking it. I remember uh, watching this kicking it, kicking it, going and I'm going. This is twenty one twelve. Why? This is a this is a curse or something. It's bad luck. So. I remember that. That was one of my memories of them, you know, performing in San Antonio uh, when they did Test for Echo. But anyway, so his daughter, after that, I remember hearing his daughter got into a car accident. And what happened was she was going off to college and she slid off the road and ran into a tree and died instantly. At least I think she died instantly. Oh, no. His only kid. Now, he'd been touring for years. Oh, no. Can you imagine how much work he spent away from his family to do and this. And then she's just provide. gone. And then she's gone. So this had to be a oh huge... Oh my god, no. So yeah, he, he went through that. And then what happened was his wife was at that point uh, in, in so distraught and in despair, he said it was like she was on constant suicide watch. She had no will to live at that point. I don't blame her. If we lost our boys like that, I'd I'd probably be in the same boat. Well. I'd be like, my child's gone. Well, what happened with her is, you know, I mean, you have to, I don't know. It's, I don't know. I mean, you have to keep finding a will to live. But in the beginning, you know, I'm sure, sure it was, you know. No parent should ever have to bury their child. Nope. But um, what happened after that, in the same span of a year, she developed cancer. Oh, you're kidding me. Nope, she developed cancer. And that was the time that she was happy because she knew she was going to see her daughter again and then she died. Oh, that is so So, sad. So within 10 months. He lost his daughter and his wife. Yes. Oh my God. So that, obviously that had to put a major toll on him mentally. Um. He just was so I and I remember this, too, when I read it uh, from one of his books. He. uh, Well, yeah, so she died of broken heart and slow suicide by apathy. She didn't care. But in his book on Ghost Rider. I mean, it wasn't a suicide, but it was because, I mean, she I highly doubt she went through any kind of treatment. Yeah. Because she didn't want to, she wanted to see her daughter again. So it, it was a suicide. It's not. It's not a suicide because she had cancer. I mean, it was. It was the cancer that was killing her. But you wonder if could she could she could she could she have survived had she tried? Well, at this point, there's no way to know. But uh, in in his book, I read that it's called Ghost Rider Travels on the Healing Road. When they were at Selena's funeral, he told. Alex and Getty Lee's and consider me retired. So then, yeah, so, and then he took a long sabbatical to mourn and reflect and then traveled extensively throughout North and Central America on his motorcycle, covering 88,000 kilometers or 55,000 miles. Um, 
And then after that, after his journey, he decided to return to the band and he wrote a book from his travels. I mean, that's... Didn't you read that book? Yeah, I don't know that I ever finished it. I read some of it and then I was, I meant to finish it. I knew I, I think it was the only book that he had come out with. So I wanted my dad to read it. So I gave it to him. He finished it and then he sent it back. So I have to reread it at least. Um... I mean, you can't blame him for taking this about it. No, I mean, the guy lost his his daughter and then his wife. Um, but after the later on, he was uh, introduced to a photographer whose name is Carrie Nuttall. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Could be Nuttall. I don't know. In Los Angeles, uh, by Andrew McNaughton, and he was a Rush photographer. Like a photographer for the band. Uh huh. Yeah, he'd been, uh, yeah, a long time. I remember seeing that name for years. Uh, So then Neil got married, or they married on September 9th, 2000. Whoa, wait, who? Neil. Neil and and the, uh, what is her name, Carrie. Oh, you said Carrie, and I was still thinking it was a guy. I was like, what? No. Not that there's there's anything wrong with it. No, but I was just really confused. So... No, they got married uh, September 9, 2000, and then by early 2001, uh, Peart announced that he was ready to return to recording and performing, and that's when... So, what year did his wife and daughter die? Uh, 97. And they got married in 2009? Well, so his daughter Selena died in 97, August 10th, uh, 97. His wife passed away... On June 20th, 1998. Right, but then he got remarried in what, 2009? Uh, 2000. In 2000, so almost four years later. Yeah. Well, three. I mean... Three years from the time of his daughter's death. That's that's not bad. Yeah, I mean, it would be... To me, I would find it a little weird if it was like within that year. Or right, I just... I, for I some reason, I was time. thinking it was like yeah. a longer period than that. Like... Somewhere between five and ten. Yeah. No, three is, I think, adequate. So that, that's that's a time frame where you could see something serious developing versus like, dude, they've only been gone a year. You know. No, I. That's yeah. Okay. So I was just thinking it was a longer time period than mm-hmm. that. So two thousand two, they came out with Vapor Trails, and then they toured, um, and then at that point. Pierre really had decided to shy away from the interviews when they do press release for the touring, you know, in each place. He decided not to do it anymore because I guess people don't understand the concept of quit bringing up the death of his daughter, you know. And right. Wife. They just keep poking that sore spot. So he's like, here. I don't want to deal with that anymore. I don't want to. So he's just like, you know what? Um, so now it's just, it was just Alex and Getty that would do the press release. Um, when you imagine, I mean, I don't really blame him. It's not like he really owes anybody anything. Mm-mm. So, you know, I know people got get mad when, you know, we're big Rush fans. He could at least, you know, come out and say hi or something. Yeah, but you're going to bring up he's his wife and kid. To. Right. So, well, and even if he didn't, he's not really obligated to. No. Leave him alone. I mean, he's old. He's tired. He's, you know. So, you know, get over it. What did you give him besides the money, which, you know, he's given... You give him money, but yet he's still giving you his hard-earned, I'm in pain, drumming, you know, like crazy to give, to give you the best performance that you can get out of me. Mm-hmm. You know, what else do I really need to owe you, you know? 
Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, so there you go. And that, and so now, um, we talked about his style and influences. He had some say he, you know, his influences are eclectic, uh, ranging from like Pete Thomas, John Bonham. Eclectic or eclectic? Oh, sorry, eclectic. There we go. Like Pete Thomas, John Bonham, Michael Giles, Ginger Baker, Phil Collins, Steve Gadd, Stuart Copeland, Michael Shreve, Keith Moon, um, Let's see, I think Billy Cobham, Buddy Rich, Bill Butte, Bruford, and Green, or sorry, Gene Krupa. Um, let's see, and then in, he had, and it says he had long played matched grip, but shifted to traditional as part of his style through invention of the mid '90s under the tutelage of jazz coach Freddie Gruber. He played traditional grip throughout his first introduction DVD a work in progress, and on Rush's test for Echo Studio album, but he went back to using primarily matched. Through the, he, or though he continued to switch to tra- tra- traditional at times when playing songs from Tess for Echo, and during moments when traditional grip felt more appropriate, such as during the rudimental, rudimental snare and drum section of his solo, um, which he discusses in his DVD Anatomy of a Drum Solo. Okay, so can you tell me the difference between match grip and traditional grip at this point in time i cannot because you started talking about that and i, I was like i mainly said that for anybody that who happens mean? to be a drummer you know, well I, no i get that because i don't i'm sitting there going i get that i just i didn't know if when you were reading it if you looked up what those differences was yeah i'm sure i'm gonna go after the fact and, and research it but at this point my thing was i got these notes i really want we want to do this episode it's been two weeks and let's just Right, no, I get that. I just, I didn't know if you had that information. What, what is the difference between match grip and traditional grip? I mean, I thought just holding the drumsticks was holding the drumsticks. Yeah, um, no, I don't, I don't know the difference. And I'm sure, you know, if there's any drummer that is listening to this, I'm sure. Please email us. School us on the difference. Give us the knowledge. Um, so what else? What is the difference? Tell us. He, I, I don't really want to go into detail about the tip, different types of drum, drum sets or, you know, the pieces. Right. But it, it does say that he he has a 360-degree drum kit, which we discussed, uh, with a large acoustic set in front and electronic, and electronic drums in the rear. The electronic was for, like, the 80s. Right. You, like, you more know. like the techno sound. Yeah. Which he began incorporating electronic drums in 1984's Grace Under Pressure. So still wasn't born. But it, <laughs> during the late 70s, yeah, during the late 70s, he augmented his acoustic setup with diverse percussion instruments, including orchestra bells, tubular bells, wind chimes, crotals. I don't even know what that is. Timba, timbles? 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 I've heard of timbles. T i m b a l e s. I've Tim- heard of timbles, but I can't remember exactly what they are. Timpani, gong, temple blocks, bell tree, triangle, and mel- melodic cowbells. And then he eventually what he did was, because there were so many of them, he condensed it to uh, MIDI trigger pads. So all he had to so do was hit a pad. So he turned his acoustic into basically like an electronic drum kit. Yeah, so he just, yeah. So, because when he, whenever he wanted a particular sound, he'd hit this one and he'd get that versus having to hit all the different ones. Yes. That's just, like, insanely clever to me. Well, because, like I said, there's so much and to get up and just, and then he, but you get, to, you get to that age 
Right, right but I mean, up and... but who thinks of that? Was... I mean, to me, and just going into, you know, comparisons here, like, uh, when you were still teaching, like, when you used to play World of Warcraft, mm-hmm. and you were teaching me how to play, you taught me about macros, which was you hit, like, say, L, and it would get you to do some particular function versus clicking on something and then right-clicking and then selecting this, and then you would do that function. Yeah, that was... You taught me about doing the macros, which I would have just done it the long way. Most people Be- would. Cause... Right, because we don't think of crap like that. But computer so geeks he... like me right, understood and... the concept of like control Vs and Victor for paste. Right. So things like that were... And see, I never would have thought of that. And he basically took that same program of creating these macros, but using them for sound. And so that this keypad basically took these four percussion instruments and turned it into one sound. So he did have to hit one thing versus four things. Right. He, well, yeah, creating digital samplers, basically what he did. Yeah. That's just insane to me. And he would do that because, like, you can hear on his uh, drum solos, even on the live DVDs, when he does his drum solos, you can, he obviously he's like pressing something as he's drumming, you know, and then going back. Right. That's insane to me. I'm sorry. Um, it's just, he's just very sharp with memory. You know, you have to be. But I mean, to, to figure out that there's ways that he basically cut corners, but still got the same sound mm-hmm. and the same level of perfection. Yeah. You know, while saving himself time is just outstanding to me. That's just crazy. Well, I'd never, I'm I didn't surprised. know he did that. So. What else? Let's talk about 2112 again, because the notes I have on this is the song 2112 actually, according to this, focuses on the struggle of an individual against the collectivist forces of a total, sorry, totalitarian state. Totalitarian? Uh, Yeah, totalitarian. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. It's like what getting to be 11 o'clock now. So at night. Yeah. So. But yeah, total, total totalitarian. Totalitarian. I don't know why I can't say that. Totalitarian. Say it with me. Totalitarian. Yeah. yeah say so it with me. Totalitarian. <laughs> he said there was a remarkable backlash, especially from the English press, which I told you, and this being the late seventies when collectivism was still in style, especially among journalists. He said. They were calling us junior fascists and Hitler lovers. Oh, that's what he was saying. Oh, so that's why they were compared to Hitler. Yeah. Is because they were going against the social quo. Mm-hmm. Aha. All uh, right, I'm following you. I still disagree, but I'm following you. And it says, uh, weary of ideological fealty to Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Purit has sought to remind listeners of his eclect, eclectic, eclect, eclect, sorry, I can't, eclecticism and independence in interviews. He did not try to argue in defense of Rand's views, saying, For a start, the extent of my influence by the writings of Anne Rand should not be overstated. I am no one's disciple. Hmm. And then, of course, you know, other after that, like the songs, um, uh, moving pictures, well, the song Limelight, an example. Uh, 
obviously is about being famous and always being the limelight. You know, so that's a given. But that's why I said, I mean, dealing with everyday life, that's after the fantasy, it started to become what else do I write about? Oh, having to be famous, you know, dealing with that. And like I said, Grace Under Pressure, um, they did a Holocaust Red Sector A and a death of a close a death of close friends in after image. Um, and then hold your fire and that presto roller bones counterparts would continue to explore would continue to explore diverse lyrical motives, even addressing the topic of love and relationships. He didn't do it a lot though, but he did do it later on. And then uh, and then of course, uh, subject of which he purposely avoided in the past out of the fear of using cliches um, is why he didn't do the love songs. So, you know, because, which I think that worked for them. Yeah. But in 2002's Vapor Trails, it was heavily devoted to Peart's personal issues along with other humanitarian topics such as the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Peace, Peaceable Kingdom. Yeah, that was a, a hard time period. I mean, I was in sixth grade at the time. Yeah. And then and I was still, I, I had never heard of Rush at that time period, so I can only imagine. I don't, I don't know if I've particularly heard those songs in reference to the 9-11. Well, yeah, I don't think you really listened to the album. Yeah, I don't think I have. You'd have to listen to the album. I mean, and then after that it was, um, Snakes are, six, uh, sorry, Snakes and Arrows dealt primarily in, uh, those, I can't even, whatever. Which one? Vosifiria, I can't, uh, whoever wrote this these are my notes, but I. Oh. Vosphorously. Vosphorously. I don't know. I sound like an idiot trying Vociferously. To... Thank you. Vociferously. I don't know why I can't pronounce it. I must be still exhausted. I thought you were pointing at. No, no, no. This word. I'm like, fearless? Faithlessness? No, no, no. How is that hard to pronounce? And regarding faith and religion. Um, faithless. I think it's talking about basically the. Because the beginning part is V-O-C-I, which is like voice. Right. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to look that up because I don't obviously. I don't have my phone or I do it. Um, but anyways, opinions of Peart's lyrics have always been on the fence. Right. Um, yeah. Some like fans. Well, I'd say mainly fans have you know, said that they're thoughtful and intelligent as far as the lyrics. Some of the critics said that they're overwrought and bombastic bombastic yeah and in 2007 he was ranked number two after sting on blender magazine's list of worst lyricists in rock worst lyricists and in contrast all music had called pure one of rock's most accomplished lyricists so so it it basically boils down to personal preference Mm -hmm. because i mean if if they vote him one of the worst and then, but then you've got this other group saying he's one of the best. It really boils down to what is your personal preference, and do you like it or do you not? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't really take that to face value. I really don't because it doesn't really matter. Well, no. I mean, it's it's a lot, my opinion, it's yeah. along the same lines as art. I mean, you either like it or you don't. You either like it or you don't. I mean, are they great artists because of certain technical aspects? Yes. Are they bad artists due to other different technical aspects yes but if you still like them even though a large group of people may say that they suck well you still like them so that's art to you and music is art Mm -hmm. 
It is an audible form of art. I say art imitates life and life imitates art. Yes, it does. It's a vicious circle. So, as far as political views, we're going to get into that. I guess we should, because why not? <laughs> we are talking about Neil he Peart, never really... and that encompasses all aspects of Neil Peart. Yeah, so I guess, well, for most of his career, he never publicly identified with any political party or organization in Canada or the United States, in this country. So even so... Um, I guess people just try to figure that out, but they can't. So he never really stated whether he was Republican, Democrat, liberal, no. well, whatever. And so because he never gave any indications one way or the other, nobody really knows. Not Well, not until maybe mid to late 90s. Um, before, let's see, 90, October 93, shortly before that year's Canadian federal election, Peart appeared with then Liberal Party leader, Jean Chrétien, I don't know, inter- interviewed Broadcast Canada on Much Music. The interview, Peart stated, he was an undecided voter who supported Qu- Quebec federalism, but then he has often been categorized as an objectivist and admirer of Ayn Rand, uh, obviously based on the books. We already talked about that. So, once again, uh, he's, he's more on being, I think, a humanist. So whatever okay. side is about for the people whatever is best for humanity as a whole actually no it does he did say what he was that's right um but going back to his book like so in i'm gonna just say this in 2012 june 2012 rolling stone did an interview with him and they asked if rand's words to speak to him and pure replied oh no that was 40 years ago but it was important to me at the time and transition of finding myself and having faith that what I believed was worthwhile. Peart has also ascribed to a philosophy that he has called tierism, which means that anything that one tries to attain will be attained. Tierism or tryism? Um, tryism. See, I'm butchering up these words. And I'm reading it upside down. I, I keep thinking it's tierism. Well, but it's T-R-Y. If it was tierism, it'd be T-Y-R. Maybe I'm starting to be quasi-dyslexic. <sighs> I know I'm dyslexic, but I don't know what your excuse is. So tryism. Tryism. Sorry, I butchered that up. Once again, another word. I just I'm just having a rough night tonight. Uh, and I've been the one that's been drinking. So tryism, which means that anything that one tries to attain will be attained if one tries hard enough. I like that theory. Just off that statement, I like that. Um. But this says, although Peart is sometimes assumed to be a conservative or Republican rock star, he has criticized the Republican Party by stating that the philosophy of the party is absolutely opposed to Christ's teaching, teachings. So in 2005, he described himself as a left-leaning libertarian and is often cited as a libertarian celebrity. In July 2011, Peart reiterated those views, calling himself a bleeding-heart libertarian. <laughs> so you really know till later in life what he was, but then again, people change. Oh, well, but time, I think so. by that point he got to the point where he was like, you know what? I don't care. I'm this. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. Let's see. He's a member of the Canadian charity Artists Against Racism and worked with him on Radio PSA. Um, but in 2015, in an interview with Rolling Stone, he did state that he supports the Democratic Party. But being that he has a he does have a U.S. citizenship. And he lives in Los Angeles. So 
if he feels like he can vote, I think he can. Once you have a U.S. citizenship, you can vote. Well, if he's a U.S. citizen, then yeah, he can vote. So yeah, vote however you, a, you want. I mean, just because I don't agree with you, that don't mean nothing. Nobody's gonna agree with everybody all the time. We just got to do our best. So we're almost done. Um, his books. Yeah, <laughs> he has a lot of them. A couple DVDs, but a lot of books that he wrote. A lot of this is just traveling. He he'll he travel did a on his lot motorcycle. of traveling on his bike, didn't he? Especially when he was on tour. Right. So well, he. But, but ultimately, we didn't get into ultimately why he retired. Well, well, yeah, because he's in a lot of pain, and he's married and has a right. But daughter. then he has he's got some form of arthritis. Yeah, he's I can't remember which art. And he at one point he had like a severe infection in his feet, didn't he? Yeah, from well, he, he, he I think he considered that was he regretted doing it, but I think he was riding his motorcycle in the rain while they're on tour. And he so got like, like a, a fungal infection. Yeah, like, a, like a fungal infection. Here's, but this says a lot about his character. Rather than canceling the shows or the tour, he, he decided as a professional he played through the pain. Oh my god! I'd have been like, nope, sorry, love y'all, not doing it. So that's why when somebody says negative things about Neil Peart, you know, about him not coming out and talking to his fans. I'm like, he gave you, you don't understand. He did a lot for you. Mm-hmm. Versus for these him. other artists that yeah. will get pissed drunk and go, oh, not coming. Perform. Dude, I have a cold. I'm not performing. Dude. So I'm just going to list the different, because there's, I mean, you have to read uh, the books. You know, you can go read them, and, but I don't want to get into too much detail. But most of them are just, excuse me, if it's not about, Drumming itself, it's about him traveling on his motorcycle or riding a bicycle through, I think it was West Africa, and writing down in a journal, and then he published it. And so it's just his mind or his philosophy down in a book. So if you want more Right, it's of that, not anything that's specifically Rush-based unless yeah. it's about drumming. So, so basically, he came out with, let's see, well, he's the author of seven nonfiction books, uh, latest released in 2016. And let's see. So his first book was Mask Rider Cycling in West Africa. And then after his daughter and wife died, he, he wrote Ghost Rider Travels on the Healing Road. And then years later, after his marriage to Natal, um, he wrote Traveling Music, playing back the soundtrack to my life and times. But he he traveled by car, though, on that one. He didn't ride his motorcycle. Mm-hmm. So and then... Um, Eventually, I guess while they were on a 30th anniversary tour, he released Roadshow, Landscape with Drums, a concert tour by motorcycle. I guess two books. Sorry. He released two books there. And then the next book was Far and Away, A Prize Every Time. Uh, And then Follow Up Far and Near on Days Like These. And Why to Bring That Horizon to Me. And then, of course, he came out with Clockwork Angels, the book. Which I think we have that one, yeah, don't we? we have that one. And then sequel, Clockwork Lives. Um, I don't think it's a very long book. The thing that turned into a um, the graphic novel. Yeah, so. Mm, which I think we have the graphic novel, don't we? No. No? I no. thought we did. Mm-mm. And there's Drum Beats, uh, Rhythm and Light, 
Uh, we said Clockwork Angels, but uh, taking center stage. Let's see. Okay, and then Clockwork. So we got through those. Okay. Side projects. Uh, let's see. He did Jeff Berlin, 1985 album Champion. Jeff Berlin's Champion. Played drums on two songs, title track Champion and Marabi. Uh, Veridical Horizons 2009 album Burning the Days. Drums on three songs, including Save Me for Myself, Welcome to the Bottom, and Even Now. Vertical Horizons 2009 album Burning the Days, Even Now, co-written by Maskin. And so he co-wrote on that album. Mm-hmm. And then Vertical Horizons 2013 album Echoes from the Underground. Drums on two songs, including Instamatic and South for the Winter. Then, of course, remember I told you about the Burning for Buddy, a tribute to the music of Buddy mm-hmm. Rich. And then, so there's the first, so there's two volumes to that. And then he had, uh, let's see, he had a brief cameo in 2007 film Aqua Teen Hunger Force, colon movie <laughs> film for theaters, which samples of his drumming were played. <laughs> and then he had a brief cameo in 2008 film. And for film. anybody unfamiliar with Aqua Teen Hunger Force, it's completely absurd and vulgar and just like somebody seriously tripping on acid when they wrote this so it's really funny that he would be featured on aqua teen hunger force or that i even know what aqua teen hunger force is no i'm not surprised i am because it's i don't like watching it it's just it's really it's not your taste no it isn't it's more my taste, but I even it is. I don't even but watch it. I guess that explains why he, Neil Peart would be on that because you you're a Neil Peart purist. Well, Danzig was on there too at one point, not in the movie though, uh, oh. an episode. So mm, Danzig, that's another character yes. in himself. Uh, let's see. Peart also had a brief cameo in 2008 film Adventures of Power, and in the DVD extra. Does a drum off comp- competition. Let's see. Apart from Rush's video releases as a band, Peart has released the following DVDs as an individual A Work in Progress, Anatomy of a Drum Solo, The Making of Burning for Buddy, Taking Center Stage, A Lifetime of Live Performance, and Fire on Ice, The Making of the Hockey Theme. So. Hmm. So a couple videos there on his own. He's done a lot of work. Mm-hmm. All right. Now we get to the awards and honors. He has received the following awards in the Modern Drummer Magazine Reader's Poll. Hall of Fame, 1983. Best Rock Drummer, 1980, 1981, 1982, 1983, 1984, 1985, 1986, 1986, 1986 honor roll rock drummer multi percussion. <clears throat> As a member of the of the honor roll in these categories, he is no longer eligible for votes in above the categories. I guess with the asterisks, but you guys can't see the asterisks, so you'd have to go do the look that up on your own. Let's see. 
Best Instructional Video, 2006, for Anatomy of a Drum Solo. Best Drum Recording of the 1980s, 2007, for YYZ, from Exit Stage Left. Best Recorded Performance. This one's kind of long. Yeah, there's a lot of them that he won Best Recorded Performance. 1980 for Permanent Waves. 1981, Moving Pictures. 1982, Exit Stage Left. 1983, Signals. 1985, Grace Under Pressure. 1986, Power Windows. 1988, Hold Your Fire. 1989, A Show of Hands. 1990, Presto. 1992, Roll the Bones. 1993, Counterparts. 1997, Test for Echo. 1999, Different Stages. 2002, Vapor Trails. 2004, R30. 2007, Snakes and Arrows. 2011, Time Machine. 2012, Clockwork Angels. That's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, mm-hmm. 18 different times he won a Best Recorded Performer. 18 people. Quite an accomplishment. And he has... I feel like I suck. <laughs> yeah, but I'm I, not I, a professional drummer, so... I'm not a professional anything. <laughs> I have a bachelor's in fine art, but that makes me a professional at nothing. Let's see. Pert Pert has received the following awards from Drum Magazine for 2007. Drummer of the Year, Best Progressive Rock Drummer, Best Live Performer, Best DVD Anatomy Anatomy of a Drum Solo, Best Drumming Album, Snakes and Arrows. And let's see. Pert received the following awards for Drum Magazine for 2008. Drummer of the Year, Best Progressive Rock Drummer, Runner-Up, Best Mainstream Pop Drummer, Runner-Up, Best Live Drumming Performer. Uh, He received the following words from Drum Magazine for 2009. Drummer of the Year, Best Progressive Rock Drummer. And then for Drum Magazine for 2010, Drummer of the Year, Best Live Performer, Runner-Up, Best Progressive Rock Drummer, Runner-Up. Of course, so he he basically won Drummer of the Year for Drum Magazine... From 2007 to 2010. Mm-hmm. Jesus. I really feel like I suck. Well, I mean, once again, don't compare yourself to this guy. There's no point. Um, <clears throat> along with, let's see, Alex and Getty, uh, he was made an officer of the Order of Canada on May 9th, 1996. And, of course, the Trio was the first rock band to be so honored as a group. Uh, he was also inducted in the Canadian Songwriter Hall of Fame along with Alex and Getty on April 18th, 2013. And then, oh, I'm sorry, he, on April 18th, 2013, Rush was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As far as in the U.S.? Uh-huh. Which I remember you being exceptionally pleased about that. Well, it was about time, but, you know, there's a lot of great rock bands in history that still haven't... Well, true, but I mean, Rush was like your band. Yeah. You know? I don't really, I hadn't thought about it, them being in the Hall of Fame, because I I just assumed that they already were, Mm. you know, but I didn't. Well, because to you, they were. Right. But I didn't ever really, it never dawned on me they weren't, let alone I never thought about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, except when it would come up somehow in conversation. So, but there you go. Um, There's a lot on him uh, than more than I thought more just being a drummer for Rush yeah 
Wow. Maybe we would have gotten if we did it on Alex or... Oh, it would have been... It would have been just as long. I don't know about Alex. He doesn't... As far as I tell, he doesn't really... He doesn't really have a whole lot. At least uh, as far as I know, he doesn't have a lot lot of information out there except that he... You know, obviously he was in Rush, and then he does he did some side projects with some other bands or artists. But of the three of them, I would I I picture Alex is or not Alex Neil is like the quietest of the three. You yeah, know, the one that is. keeps to himself the most, and mm-hmm. yet there was still a lot of information on him. So God only knows what we could uncover talking about Alex and Getty. Getty, I think, is no pun intended the most vocal of the three. Butch. Again, no pun intended. But um, well, and Getty's and Getty's supposed to be like the biggest baseball. Yes, I have heard that. Biggest collection in the. And I don't know if it's the world or what. So, but that's still a subject for another episode. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, what what is our next? Oh. Our next episode, we are delving into the realms of oceanography. Specifically, how do electric eels work? Why do electric eels work? Why are they electric? Why are they electric? Are they eels? Are they? I don't know. Guess we'll find we'll out. We'll find out at the next episode. But, and it, it, it goes into, I've delved into also, not just electric eels, but what animals in general use electricity? How do they use electricity? Why? You well, know? that's a fascinating subject. At least I think. I mean, I guess you would ask me to pick, didn't you? And I was like, because you... I don't remember how the subject came up. I think you just randomly asked that question one time. And I was like, I don't know. Let's because I didn't, I didn't... I'm thinking, I don't even really know how electric eagles... Well, you don't picture electric electricity and... Especially aquatic animals going together. My only re- recollection of electric eels, remember I told you it was on that movie that came out in the 90s, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? Yes. And they use electric eels, and you're going, I don't think that that's even possible. But I was a kid. Right. So I kind of wanted to believe that could happen. But then I'm and like, I'll talk, I don't think I'll, that... I'll talk more about that on the episode, too, as far as the, the plausibility yeah. Of that. I'm sure it'll be shocking. Ha 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 ha. Sorry, I had to throw Lame laughter. Mm-hmm. But, oh, and going back to our previous episode of The Hodag. 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 Um, there was a several questions we brought up that, you know, was like the Smithsonian. When was that founded? Uh, was chloroform even around at the time that this came up? And what was the other one? Oh, ski jumping. Was that even a thing in the 1800s? Yes, all of those were around at the beginning of the 1800s. So by the time this happened in the mid to late 1800s, they they would have been out there. I, I can't find my specific notes on them in the exact years, but they were all legit things at the time. Funny how notes get lost. Dude, have you seen our house? Yeah. Well, we could always just say that Nicholas got a hold of it and ran off. That's highly possible. That kid grabs everything. Nicholas. Puck. So, okay. Um, That's going to be episode four. 
Yes, How Do Electric Eels Work, Episode 4. For some reason, I thought you were talking about this was Episode 4. I'm no. like, what? No, it's not. Nope. So, um, the, yes, aquatic intellect. Yep. And then, eels do we, and other such animals. Do we know what's after that one as far as the subject? Uh, at this point, I believe we are planning on... Something involving the medical field. So if you have a topic for discussion, email us. Let us know what it is. Mm-hmm. As far as medical discoveries, medical questions, weird stuff that's happened in the medical field. You can always do it on that lady that caused a few deaths in the hospital by excreting some chemical out of her pores. Yeah, that was on what? Uh, Untold Stories of the ER? I don't remember if it was on that. You probably remember that, but I don't remember. That was weird. She had some chemical imbalance in her body that was killing nurses left and right. Well, it wasn't killing him. It was like making them pass out. Oh. I thought it was killing them. No, it was like hospitalizing them. They had to quarantine her and isolate her. So, yeah, if you got any weird stories like that, email us. Say, hey, I'm a nurse. I've had this weird thing happen. Email us about it. Let us know. I mean, at this point, the medical topic is kind of up in the air. But uh, if you've got something specific, let us know. Insideaddiction at gmail.com, people. Find us on Facebook. We are on Facebook. We are on Facebook. We're out there. We're like aliens. We're out there. (laughs) Sorry. I just envisioned seeing Mulder park around the corner. Yeah, well, and you haven't put up your poster. No, i got to find space for it. You actually have that I believe poster. Mm -hmm. I want to believe. Where is that thing anyway? I don't know. But I saw a picture of a guy who'd gotten a, a patch that was basically that poster, but on like a, a like a clothing patch. Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to say, I want to believe, but the B was missing. So it just said, I want to leave with the UFO on it. Oh, that's funny. That's classic. It's like, yeah, still applicable. <laughs> Anywho. So... Email us if you have any topics for discussions, stuff that you want us to talk about, any range of subjects, let us know. Mm-hmm. We're open to everything. We are addicted to learning about absolutely everything. Almost. Absolutely. Almost absolutely everything. Not everything. There's, That's there's, a bold statement. Well, but I mean, there's very little that you and I wouldn't delve into, at least a little bit, to know kind of what it's about. So. Mm. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we might not want to know, like, full details about everything, but we at least want to know a little bit about everything. Yeah. Even, especially in just general terms. Just want to become a vessel of knowledge. Yes. Which, here's a tidbit for you. And you listeners may not care, but... The word colloquial has been stuck in my head the past week, which colloquial basically means something that's ordinary or commonplace or everyday or normal. Yet the word colloquial in and of itself is an uncommon, abnormal word that you don't hear every day. 
Nope. I don't hear it every day. I don't. I've heard it three times in the last week, which is really, really flipping weird. And that's when I've heard it is when you keep bringing it up. I know, because it's so weird. It's not something you hear. Eh. So, yeah, if you have tidbits like that, email us. Send us a message on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Is that it? That's all I've got. That's all I got, too. So, I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. I'm tired, too. So, let's go ahead and call it a night. And we will see you all next time. Hopefully next week. Hopefully. We'll see how it goes. But, hope to hear from you people soon. Love your faces. Even though we never see them. Even though we never see them, I still love your faces. Yep. So. Toodles.